This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. Let me set the stage. We're not in Washington. We are in New York City. Specifically, we are inside the Viacom CBS election night headquarters for CBS in Midtown Manhattan, 1515 Broadway. We're in a kind of makeshift conference room that is a lunchroom for all of our CBS colleagues throughout the podcast. You might hear the rustling of bags like this. My colleagues are eating their lunch. It's about lunchtime. 2.05 Eastern on Thursday, November 5th. What is your state of mind about the election? Well, we're going to give you as much information as we can. Obviously, it is dependent on developments yet to occur And this podcast, at least in some specifics, might be overtaken by events on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday of next week. We don't know how long this podcast will last in terms of its elasticity, but we're going to do our very best. I'm joined in that endeavor by my brother from a journalist, a different journalistic mother, Ed O'Keefe, our political correspondent. Anthony Salvanto from our decision desk may join us. If he does, that will be kind of a impromptu thing and we'll weave him into the conversation whenever and however we best can ed how are you good you know he's leaning towards joining us but it's just too close to call. that's right it's too close to call that's right we don't have a likely or we don't have a projected arrival time arrival time we'll work on that yeah but the polls closed about 30 the minutes polls ago. did close quite a while ago all right you know what's the greatest part of this facility we're in here the viacom tell me, cbs tell me, tell uh, me, world headquarters here in mm-hmm. times square the ghost of carson daly lingers here this was the home of mtv yes and total and request live were you young enough to watch the total I was request not. Live? no so i, was I not. did every once in a while that was not meant as a subtle dig i'm just making sure you never know one knows i'm major old. has contemporary tastes you see now i had a line saved up for election night mm-hmm. in the event that our locale ever came up yes this was the home of total request live mm-hmm. tonight we will not be bringing you total results live why didn't you unfurl that that was a good one look it was just you know it never it never came to me. But I think what has happened here is what many of us anticipated. And we should be... In one respect. In that it was going to take a while. Yes, that's right? the respect in which... Yes. yes, that is my point. Right. We warned people. We began warning people, I think, as early as June. Because all the work we were doing and discussions, and I know you especially were having with elections officials and mm-hmm. secretaries of state across the country, signaled 
that the sort of inverted way we voted this year across the country, early first day of less so, was going to cause a sort of supply-demand issue that meant that a count of a several days in some states might ensue. Might ensue. And, and as our colleague David Becker, the elections law expert, has said, as Anthony has said several times, there are always counts going on in the days after elections because they've got to dot I's, cross T's, and count every single ballot that comes in. It's just that the fate of the world and the republic doesn't often hang on those counts. Right. And what we have, as again, we record this, five states that are in the toss-up category. They are going west to east. Since I'm a native Californian, I go west to east. Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. Other news entities have called Arizona already for former Vice President Joe Biden. CBS News has not. It is a lean to Biden, as is Nevada, but neither are called. Neither are projected. And one thing I want to emphasize right off the top, ladies and gentlemen, this is really, really important. Projections from news organizations don't make a president. Proclamations from politicians don't make a president. Certifications of votes conducted by the election officials who are the custodians of those votes make a president. Until that happens... It is projected and asserted, but not certified. And the certification process is one that begins as soon as the polls close, because the process of counting, tabulating, verifying begins. And that's what's going on right now. And it is going on in ways, to pick up on Ed's point, more transparent than ever before in American history. There are cameras in places. Things are happening in real time and being reported. In Pennsylvania, there are observers. In Georgia, there are observers. There are observers in Arizona. To verify what's gone on, they represent both political parties, which means both interested parties. And that is designed to accomplish three things. Count the votes, count the votes accurately, and have a verifiable count that not only the winner will embrace, but the defeated party will also embrace. And to Ed's point, on this podcast, The Takeout, and on my other podcast known as The Debrief, we have spent a considerable amount of time talking to election officials around the country. You can go back to the archives of both shows to learn what's going on now and catch yourself up. We also have on that podcast I mentioned, The Debrief, an entire show devoted to something that's playing out right now, polls, projections, and winners. How do news organizations come up with the material, the information necessary to project a winner. And right now, the Associated Press is in a different category than CBS News. And on that podcast, a debrief, you hear from Steve Allemacher, who sits at the top of the decision desk for the Associated Press, explaining how they do it. So there's lots of information we've done that you can go back and find to educate yourself about what's going on right now. So, Ed, do you have any sense that in the next 24 hours, again, it's 2 p.m., November 5th in New York, 48 hours, 72. What do you have a sense we might learn in terms of who won, where, and whether or not there will be a projected president? So the Biden campaign earlier in the day on Thursday, November 5th, held a press conference that essentially went state by state with those five states. I go east to west, sorry, upstate New York here. Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. Um, and 
you know, in most cases, they're feeling pretty good. They believe there'll be a sizable amount of votes for Biden in Pennsylvania that probably puts him over the top. Uh, Georgia, they believed, was going to lean by the end of Thursday to the vice president based on the count in Metro Atlanta. Uh, in Arizona, the margins are tightening, but they remained bullish and they believe that they'll win tens of thousands of votes. They didn't outright say enough to surpass the president. And notably, Republicans have been saying they believed that there were potentially hundreds of thousands of ballots still out there from Trump supporters who just hadn't gotten their ballot in yet and that they were going to be counted. They were less bullish about North Carolina, conceding that it's very tight. And North Carolina, Tar Heel State's going to take the longest at this point because they have a nine-day acceptance window till the 12th that allows people to get their ballot in. Uh, Provided it was postmarked by election day. By election day. And so, you know, the way the mail works these days, it could take nine days for a ballot to make it to its Board of Elections office. But the numbers of those ballots will be very small. But given how tight the margins are, it not only could affect the presidential race, but a really competitive and tight Senate contest that they're holding in that state, where the incumbent Senator Tom Tillis has already said he believes he's prevailed, but the Democrat Cal Cunningham has held off so far. And has not conceded. Has not conceded. Right. So that is the universe in which we live right now. There is one component part of that that we will address with great specificity in segment two, but I want to set it up. Assertions from the president of the United States that something is going on that is either fraudulent or illegal or that he's already won this election. We will deal with that. Reminder of what I said earlier. Assertions from politicians don't make winners, and they certainly don't make presidents. And what's playing out in public now is an attempt to influence public perception. But guess what? That is only a very small part of an election drama, particularly at this stage. What matters most is mathematics, counting up votes that are legally cast and verifying those results. That's the process that's playing out in the five toss-up states we mentioned You've already seen them on the map. One more time, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. I'm Major Garrett. Get ready for segment two of The Takeout in just a second. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this... All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah. You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to New York City. I'm Major Garrett. This is segment two of The Takeout. We are coming to you from a converted room here in the Viacom CBS headquarters. If you hear the rustling of lunch bags, it's because box lunches are or either will be consumed by my CBS colleagues. Ed O'Keefe is with me. <clears throat> there you go. Thanks for the sound effect, Ed. So, on this Thursday, November 5th, the President of the United States put out a statement that was written in all caps. Yes. Writing a statement in all caps doesn't make it any less true or more true 
than if you write it in standard English presentation, which means a capital letter at the beginning of the sentence and all the rest lowercase, except right. when necessary. It doesn't mean anything except, in this case, it's the president shouting, shouting that he won with legal ballots and will only lose with illegal ballots. That is false. That is not slightly false. That is absolutely false. And there is no legal claim submitted in any of these five toss-up states by the Trump campaign or any organization that ballots have been currently been cast illegally because they haven't been. What is going on now is the counting of ballots that arrived by mail, in person, early voting, or on day of. And different states have different rules for when ballots postmarked by Election Day can arrive and be legally counted. And that's the process that is playing out. Nothing about that. Nothing is illegal. Nothing about that process that I just described is fraudulent. It is the process of voters casting their ballot, their voice being heard through the counting and tabulation of that vote, and then all the mathematics adding up to determine winners and losers. That's what we're working through now, just to be clear. But, Ed, let's also acknowledge this. One thing that is in the president's mind and is certainly stuck in his craw is this is yet another election in which he was involved, where the polls suggested he would lose in places that he was now competitive, and that the overall polling arc about Joe Biden in relationship to the president was either way wrong or more wrong than right. And he says, well, I'm outperforming, and because I'm outperforming, I'm in this, and therefore I don't want to concede. That is, I think, the most generous and charitable interpretation of where he is. Yeah, I think you're right. And look, uh, our polling unit and, frankly, the Biden campaign and other observers of this entire campaign season always suspected it would be a close contest. We were far more cautious, I think, and conservative, lowercase c, in our estimations and polling of how things would end up. Two-point games, essentially, here and there. Now, it's come down to two-tenths of a game in some of these states. And yes, that is narrower. But remember, we also had scenarios or interpretations of where things could go that suggested if Republican turnout, as forecasted by opinion polls that showed that many Republicans or Trump supporters plan to vote on Election Day, was high, as it appears to have been, then this could happen. So if you've been reading closely, paying attention to what some of the better, more conservative, more studious pollsters, like the ones we employ, have said, mm -hmm. then things are going exactly as expected. Is it tighter and too close for comfort right. in some of these bigger states? Absolutely. But we must acknowledge that the meta-narrative across the country was not that. The yeah. meta-narrative was— We talked about this very yes. early on Election Day. The meta-narrative was it was uh, going to be a big night for former Vice President Biden— the Democrats were on the cusp of reclaiming control of the United States Senate. The House of Representatives currently in Democratic hands would likely have a larger House majority. That's not true in the House. It's not true in the Senate. And we have a very tight presidential race. Now, Michigan isn't tight. Wisconsin isn't as tight as they both were in 2016. The Biden campaign achieved exactly what it sought to do. But other places in the country where demographics are, demographics are shifting and political leanings and allegiances are changing before our very eyes. Presidential cycle to presidential cycle are now playing out. So 
one would one could assert. Michigan returned to its most recent form right. pre twenty sixteen, as did Wisconsin, though narrowly, but not as narrowly as twenty sixteen when Donald Trump won. And Georgia and Arizona, comfortably in the Republican camp in twenty sixteen, are changing so much that the results there could go to the Democrats and do so by very small margin. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the storylines coming out of all of this in those states will be to what extent can Democrats continue that momentum into the midterm elections in two years, where in Arizona, there'll be a governor's race. In Georgia, there'll be a governor's race where Stacey Abrams may engage again. Uh, Can they build on that dominance in Michigan and Wisconsin and other places? Um, And I think this is also throughout the primary and before the primary season really began for Democrats, there was this sort of tug of war about where should the party fight the next presidential battle? Should it be along the blue wall in the upper Midwest and in Pennsylvania, or should it go to these states that are becoming quite different because of the so-called ascendant class of younger liberals and California transplants and minorities who are moving into and populating places like Arizona and Georgia and metro parts of Texas? It's fair to say the Biden campaign said, let's try both. Ultimately, they were taken to a place where they tried both. But I think if Biden had been left to his own devices, he would have stayed north of the Mason-Dixon and focused much more on places like Ohio and Iowa instead of Georgia and Arizona. Where the margins narrowed. Where the margins narrowed, but where he didn't prevail. Did not prevail. But his team that he hired, his strategist or his chief campaign manager, uh, General Malley Dillon, and others who were brought in, uh, like senior advisors like Simone Sanders, who come from sort of the next generation yes. or a more recent generation of democratic politics know that the numbers are there to make it happen in places like Arizona and Georgia and North Carolina. And so they took them there and they said, look, do it. And Kamala Harris helped because by virtue of being a woman and by being an African-American woman, they were able to send her into parts of the country uh, to, to, to drive up support that Biden himself might not have been and able to do. Let's do some quick, quick math. Again, this could be taken over by events, ladies and gentlemen. I grant you that. I understand that. But the math is it's sitting right in front of us. According to CBS News projections, the former vice president, Joe Biden, is at 253 electoral votes. You all know the magic number is 270. If the trend lines continue in Nevada and Arizona, again, neither state of which has been called by CBS News, that would be enough to take the former vice president to 270. He could also do that with any combination of Nevada and Georgia, Nevada and North Carolina, certainly Nevada and Pennsylvania. Any of that would work. Pennsylvania alone, from where the former vice president is right now. But Pennsylvania is going to take probably the longest of the five toss-up states. For the president, it's more complicated. Not impossible by any stretch of imagination, but he's got to claw back Nevada and Arizona and take Georgia and North Carolina, and then with Pennsylvania, that puts him sufficiently over the top. There are other combinations. You can work out the own math there, but the president has to win many more of those states, and always, always, always Pennsylvania to make this work for him. So it is an uphill climb for the president of the United States. One other thing to observe about what has happened. There was a question on the minds of the Trump campaign, and it was a bizarre one in presidential politics, and it was this, Ed. Can you win by less, meaning narrower margins than you won in 2016 in the states that you won, and lose by more in states you lost in 2016 and still hold on to the presidency? That is like one of the hardest things to accomplish in politics. By that I mean your your margins of victory are narrower, and your margins of defeat are higher. That's played out in a lot of places. And the margins that are narrow 
I think are a surprise to the president's campaign in North Carolina and Georgia and Arizona specifically. Right. And because they weren't they weren't of the belief that the Democratic Party was, that there was enough there to make it happen. Um, and then he lost by more in places like Michigan and Wisconsin, despite the fact that he was spending so much time there. So it was a very lopsided way of, of, of looking at things. If it ends up that way, that he, he where, where he went more often, he lost by more. Where he didn't go as much, he lost by less. With the exception of Arizona, where he went a lot. He went to he went to Arizona a lot. Proximity to Las Vegas, where he had a Western outpost, essentially, in Las Vegas. Uh, and the fact that it's a kind of place that four years ago certainly embraced his kind of politics. And he did go to Wisconsin and he did go to Michigan. And neither played out for him in the way that the campaign thought. And even though it was a little bit wobbly and neither side had a good solid read as of about 11 o'clock on election night, as time went on, the Biden campaign became a bit more confident than the Trump campaign, a little bit less so. The mathematics has vindicated that confidence and lack thereof. I'm Major Garrett. Ed O'Keefe is with me. Anthony Salvanto may join us. This is our election special on election week. This is The Takeout. Back for segment three in a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Coming to you from Midtown Manhattan in the great city of New York. Ed O'Keefe is joining me to dissect all that we can about what we know. A lot we will all learn together about election 2020, but we do know a few things. And I want to also put something out here. Since Tuesday, Ed has gotten about six and a half hours of sleep. I've gotten about six hours of sleep. So if we garble our words, if uh, it sounds as if we're in mid-sentence and we can't latch on to that next crucial verb to get us to the end of that sentence, that's sleep deprivation, ladies and gentlemen. That's what's going on. At least happen. that's what's happening to me. Yeah, well, it's happened for sure. And uh, we just have a bulletin. It has nothing to do with the results in any of the five toss-up states, but Anthony Salvanta will not be joining us. You know why? Because he's crunching numbers. And when he crunches numbers... We learn more things over time at CBS News. So we're going to let him crunch numbers, and uh, Ed and I will continue to flap our gums, right? Right. So it's unlikely he'll yes, join us. Yes, it's now unlikely. Wait, wait, oh, wait, wait, wait. oh, as soon as the words come oh, out of my right, mouth. We're going to withdraw that call. <laughs> and uh, and Anthony Salvanto is now literally walking into the makeshift conference slash lunchroom here at Viacom CBS headquarters. We don't know if there's a microphone that is going to be usable. I think there is. He rode the you elevator. Can hear the, you can hear the SpongeBob. stage manager. That's Arden Fari putting the seat together for Anthony Salvanto. It's lunchtime. Thank you. But I, I was about to ask, is it too late? But your generosity and your graciousness letting me pull up a chair is... Uh, we need is, your is voice. A- it's got nothing to do with generosity. It's all about avarice. Okay. It's all about avarice. I'm just greedy for more voices and more knowledge than I currently possess. <laughs> Though I have no doubt that Ed could, could fill your half an hour. And, uh, so, Anthony, no because you are sitting at the decision desk, um, help the audience. And I want to, again, set the time on this because it's about 2.30 on Thursday, November 5th. We know this will be overtaken by events. But for as long as it's relevant, I want you to listen to it and soak it in. Walk the audience through where we are, where we might be heading in the next 24, 48 hours. We are waiting for the states that are still in play to count their ballots. That's the, that's the simplest. Simplest, that's the simplest answer. answer. 
we're waiting. Let's start there first. And, and I always forgive me if you've already done this, Major. But if but I always contextualize this for everyone. This happens all the time, and it is hardly the first time that I have sat at a decision desk waiting for counties in you know tight races to finish counting their ballots. We've sat for days. We sat for weeks. The difference here is that I haven't actually left. Uh, usually, we get to you know go get a, a few Z's here and there, and and of course the eyes of the world are not always on it. It's usually a state here and there, a Senate race, a governor's race somewhere here and there. But it does always happen. And, and I think for the most of the country and our, certainly our audience, <clears throat> looking at this at the map, I think they would say, I don't remember seeing five toss ups this close in a presidential race. That is different. Oh, that is absolutely different. You know, in one sense, it it goes along with what we said heading into this, which was, we said it a thousand times, you said it a thousand times, election day could become election week. And there was a very specific reason for it. And it was that all of these states, many of these states, were not necessarily used to processing a lot of mail ballots. And so once any, anything you do in life, right, you change your routine and it takes you longer to do it. So they're being careful. You've, you've reported on this extensively and very well. They're being very careful. They're being very thorough. We, we hear from these folks when they get press conferences, the steps through which the ballot must go. And that's just going to take a while. So in that sense, all of this was expected. What I think was, was less expected was that so many would be so close. We knew that Pennsylvania's of the world might take longer, um, but although the polling suggested Georgia might be very close, at the, as we speak, it is extremely close. Right. So there's a there's two dimensions to that. There's process, the manner by which legal votes are being housed, processed, and tabulated. Then there's the margins, and the margins are tight. Margins are tight in Nevada. The margins are tight in Georgia. They're getting somewhat tighter in North Carolina. They're getting somewhat tighter in Pennsylvania. They're close. They are close. Now, some of them are much closer than than expected. I mean, at the moment, as they're counting in Nevada, I don't know where it'll end up, obviously. There's a moment as, as they're counting in Nevada. That is extremely close, uh, maybe closer than a lot of folks expected. Georgia, we thought would be would be tight, North Carolina tight. To the degree you can, and I don't want this to turn into any kind of dispute. I don't. But the Associated Press and Fox News have called Arizona. We have not. Is there any insight you can provide about that difference? I can only speak for what we do at our decision desk. And I would say that looking at Arizona, the margin is such that with so many ballots remaining, we are not in a position to say, as we say when we project a race, that, that one candidate will finish ahead of the other. Right. That's it. That's really just that simple. There are too many ballots left remaining. Do you have any sense that in any state that we've mentioned, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, or Pennsylvania, on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, there will be enough data to know more and possibly project? Well, at this pace, we are learning. At this pace, we are learning. But I think there's two dimensions to this. One is the pace at which we learn. How many thousands of ballots are probably going to come in as we speak? We got to word from Nevada that they would be giving us a lot of ballots then tomorrow, et cetera. But then is it a race where one candidate has a clear enough edge, given all that's remaining, where you would then project it? 
mm-hmm. right? And that's a different dimension. That's a different, I mean, you could see all the ballots or see many of the ballots more and still have it be really close. And at this stage, what you look for, if I understand it, is ballots left to be counted, geography from where they came, and if you can make, based on past experience, inferences about the likely political composition of those ballots from where they came. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of the decision-making process that we often use, kind of squeezed down, kind of like the universe concentrating into, in concentrated form into one um, small number of ballots. But it is very much the same process. If we, you have reason to believe that, say, ballots outstanding are from a Democratic or a Republican area, you can make some of those inferences. Having said all that, though, now when you get down to this small an amount, now you're really just about margin. You're just counting. Now you're really just counting. And, and you really are saying how many of those remaining ballots would the trailing candidate need to catch up? And if that number hits 80, 90%, well, the reality is, you know, nobody ever gets 80, 90% of, you know, of whatever about, remains. Of whatever remains because you already know that you've seen the other 5 million of them and they're at 51% or 52%. So some of that process does go into it. Um, but again, here we are, we're just counting ballots and subtracting at this point. Do you think it's going to be possible or probable? based on what you have seen, that there will be projections Friday, Saturday, or Sunday? Or do you think the projection of a future president, a reelected one or former Vice President Biden, will be a Monday or Tuesday proposition next week? I appreciate the question. And I, and I, (laughs) and I, you know, and here we are that, you know, the, the, the classic dodge. Okay. So, so accuse me of it if, if you will, but it is, it would not be something I would be you know, quick to do to sort of project the projections. Mm -hmm. And we get this even in not tight races. And people always ask me, when are you going to call? What time are you going to know? And it's a fair question that one could try to answer by looking at the speed with which people you typically count, et cetera. But look, in this situation, I think we're, again, we're in this sort of concentrated form where we're just going to have to see what we see and report it. But public utterances from Nevada and Pennsylvania on the pace with which the work they have to do imagines things on Friday, so we might have a little bit more clarity, at least on Friday, November 5th, Look, in those two jurisdictions. The trend line, as one who, who deals in trend lines- Every okay, single day. So the, the trend line here is that we, we learn a little bit more as we go along. The difference here is that rather than like a smooth trend line, like a little bit more, a little bit more each hour, each day, here we get this sort of boom. Data dump. Data right. dump. And then a little bit more, a little bit, and boom, another data dump. Right. And, and it can go like that, which which behind the scenes you see is a big scramble as, oh, wait, we got something. We learned something. We have more of our big scramble here at The Takeout. Segment four coming up in just a second. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for being with us. The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com today and use code SIZZLE2020 at checkout. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. 
Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. This is our election week special coming to you from New York City. Ed O'Keefe is with me. So is Anthony Salvanto. Ed, you have a question for our dear colleague, Anthony. I have life questions for you. Do you do your like friends and family know to leave you alone this week? Yes. Or are you getting annoying texts from your uncle being like, so uh, Clark County, how, how's it looking? No, they know. That's a great question. Um, they know is that, that I'm good, not going to Is that a good impression them. of your uncle? Um, eh, not quite. <laughs> no, not, 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 not quite. My uncle is... Uh, my uncle's... Uh, we can leave it at that. Seriously. No, my uncle's a seriously smart guy. Um, he, uh, But they also know uh, that I won't tell them anything. So they've long since given up on trying to ask me which way. Um, they certainly know to leave me alone on election day when I will tell them absolutely nothing. Um, I suspect that many of them are, are glad uh, that I'm not around. <laughs> and that I've sort of moved, moved away for a week. I think the, uh, you know, I moved, I all but moved into the garage during the, uh, you know, while broadcasting from home. And uh, the, the family was was really very accommodating, and I appreciate it. I appreciate my wife holding down the fort while I'm gone. And I want to let people know in the audience how this week has progressed for us, not just what you've seen on television and, and all the things that we've done on web formats and Twitter and everything else. So we've been functioning here for the better part of two weeks in a very intense COVID-19 environment. Masks everywhere, social distancing everywhere, hand sanitizer stations that are more numerous than about anything you would ever expect to see in an office setting. And we've been rehearsing with masks on, dealing with each other with masks on relentlessly. And that is part of the framing of this entire election. A country experiencing this virus in real time, voting through it early, in person, absentee, or day of, and that is an enormous factor in all of the politics and ultimately the results of this election. Yeah. Even at the desk, you know, I've usually, if you have ever seen me on election nights past, it's a bunch of people huddled closely together, all looking at tiny little like numbers. Ru- like rugby scrums. Almost. Yeah. You know, look at that little, you know, move, point two, point one. Um, and now we're, we're all distant and many of us are on Zoom calls and it was difficult. It was it was difficult. Wait, what did you say? You know, what did you say? You know, all, all of that. To, you know, you all, I think, have done just done heroes' work at at being on you know almost twenty four seven and working through it in the same you know in the same way. It's it's been tremendous. And Ed, what do you think as you begin to internalize this election? The coronavirus effect was it clearly not effect on the outcome, but it affected the way both campaigns approached. Oh, yeah. The actual process of seeking and trying to win votes. And I think that's going to be the subject of academic research for several years to come because there's five or six PhDs there somewhere. somewhere. Yeah. Don't you agree? I, yeah. Well, Mike, Mike. Oh, yeah. Literally everyone at the desk has a PhD. 
And then they're all asking the same questions. Yeah. Well, walk, walk the audience no, through because that. I, I just remember a conversation I had with a Republican on election eve who was like, they come to my city and 12 people show up to see Kamala Harris. And how is that a winning formula? Right. And the guy turns around and says, but thousands showed up in Pima County to see the president. The president. That seems to suggest to me that he can win. Now, to me, rally size is no more accurate a way to measure a potential campaign than a lawn sign contest in a neighborhood, with the exception of the fact that if you're the guy in the odd year before that's drawing tens of thousands of people to your events, you're likely going to be a late stage factor. You can see that with Barack Obama in 07, 08, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. But- I think the point is that it never seemed to click with Republicans who are in this business that there are millions of people in this country who don't want to leave their home right. and would not want a door knock from somebody right now telling them how to vote and that that actual interface might cause them to not want to vote for that person. Which because they I understand were- it, and you were in the touch with the Biden campaign every day, hour by hour. I'm not. I check in, but you're talking to them much more frequently than I am. One of their assumptions was by not doing it, we are sending a message that reinforces our entire approach to the virus itself, which right. is be cautious, follow the science, and do things the right way. Right. And I think what we're going to find, however, is that worked in many places, but it did not work everywhere. And just like you produce a television ad a certain way in one part of the country with a certain announcer's voice that you wouldn't air in the Northeast that you do in the Southwest. I think they probably didn't do a good enough job tailoring how they should approach this in different parts of the country. South Florida, for example, that is a very high touch kind of politics they play. And the Biden campaign simply didn't play it. And that's probably why he did so poorly. It's not only a high touch place. There's also a strain of machismo that runs through it as well, which is part and parcel of I'm campaigning aggressively. I'm meeting people. I have big rallies. I'm not afraid. And that and that is not a knock on on Latino culture. No, it's not. It's not a cultural observation at all. I just I I I don't think it's in any way a stereotype to say that. I think it's actually true. It is. It is. And we know looking at that and having talked to pollsters that there was great concern in the Latino community that the president Latino Democratic community, I should say, that the president was was able to eat into the traditional Democratic Latino advantage because of his machismo. And Anthony, you can quantify that in Miami-Dade. I can, yeah. The shift there was dramatic to the point where we looked at it, and I said this on the air a half dozen times, and we were like, what? I mean, really, that's the the only word. It looks like about 200,000 votes. Um, and that it was dramatic. It was truly dramatic. In fact, just to tell a story, I mean, Ed and I had been watching this and talking about it and Ed seeing one poll or asked me in my poll and he had been seeing the numbers on Latinos be not quite at Clinton margins for Biden, maybe under. And it really became after a while, cause at first I couldn't believe it. And then we saw a little bit of it. Um, it really became a question of just how much, how much more would the, you know, the president, uh, gain. Look, having said all that, I do think we want to take a hard look at it as the votes come in and we'll go precinct by precinct and county by county to get a better tallying up of what happened um, because some of, because some of that polling did at least shift late 
and real I'll, quick, Ed. On this issue of, of how you campaign, mm-hmm. I think we're going to find, especially in Arizona and Nevada and some other states, that it was outside groups, nonpartisan organizations knocking on doors, reaching out to people, registering them, that are going to be owed a lot of thanks by the Biden people for having put in the hustle in person. Uh, they're partisan in the sense they were trying to do it on behalf of the Democratic yeah, cause. Yeah, they're not Democratic Party entities. Right, they're not part of the uh, party instrumentation. Various community groups. But certainly uh, aligned. Black voter registration programs were out there doing it, risking their lives, mm-hmm. and it may have paid off in places like Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. That's the voice of Ed O'Keefe. Anthony Salvanto has also been with us for our beloved radio audience. That's the end of this episode of The Takeout. Come back again next week. And for those on the podcast, we are going to do a takeout outtake especial because there's more I want to talk about. See you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout I Take a Special. I'm Major Garrett in Midtown Manhattan at the Viacom CBS headquarters, 1515 Broadway. Yes, MTV was here. Carson Daly was here. That means I guess people who were sometimes famous might even still be famous were here. That does not include me. But it does include Ed O'Keefe and Anthony Salvanto. They're both with us. Um, one thing I want to talk about in this election, because we, we don't know the result. We've got five toss-up states still outstanding, still counting. Margins are very narrow. But we do know this. In some important states, there were new voters who didn't vote in 2016. Joe Biden tended to carry them more than President Trump. And independents in key states broke more for the former vice president than they did for Donald Trump. Do you consider either of those important, Ed? The independence thing, for sure. I mean, and what's ironic is they may have broken that way nationwide. I'll be very curious to go look at big NPA states, no party affiliation states like Florida, to really get a sense of did they shift in a bigger dramatic way. Um, and if they did, it was tended, tended to be about the coronavirus. Right. And I was going to say, that's, that's the traditional the referendum, of the president. referendum on the incumbent kind of attitude that many anticipated, which is part of why I think there were a lot of people who thought incorrectly you would see this democratic wave because the president was consistently unpopular, was consistently trailing in all these various states. So normal trends would suggest, therefore, it's going to be a Biden win and it would be cleaner than it is right now. But what what is discouraging is there was a healthy percentage of people who didn't vote four years ago who showed up. But we didn't see, I think, as big a jump in that as people anticipated. Right. The youth vote wasn't necessarily as nope. big as it has been in the past. And that says something about nominating men in their 70s to run for president. No doubt. Anthony, any thoughts about any of those three topics? Yeah. One is I encourage patience in all this in the analysis. And part of that is that we had such a difference in the way we gauged the early vote and then the way we gauged through the exit polls the in-person vote that I think I want to see all the votes come in Mm -hmm. before really go too far in breaking down any of this, number one. Number two is context, right? Do you think, do you, do you say, oh, well, an, an incumbent president, given all the things that happened, given a pandemic, given a, you know, a shaky economy at best, still really competitive. And as we sit here with a chance to win all of that, or do you see it from maybe the other side, which is a challenger to an incumbent president, swinging independence, getting all these states into play? I think that's just a matter of 
context. And a couple of pieces of uh, business about the election. Turnout will probably come in at what, 143, maybe 144 million? You're getting in the ballpark, but some of us had thought it would be closer to 160. Right. 150 for sure. Yeah. Fell short of that. It it did. And, And I would note, it looks like it's going to be really driven on election day by more Republicans than Democrats. Correct. And that's really important. And just for context on this, so there are 138.8 million votes cast in 2016. So if it ends up at being about 143 or 144, that'll be a roughly six, seven million vote increase cycle to cycle. That will pale in comparison to 2000 and 2004, where the universe of votes grew by almost 17 million from one cycle to the next. The largest amount jump from one cycle to the next. Of course, there was an intervening event in 2000, Florida, the recount, and the embedded notion that every American got that, oh my gosh, one vote really does matter. And that's why turnout grew so much. Interesting other thing about 2004, there was an incumbent president seeking re-election who made it not a referendum election, but a a choice election. Donald Trump tried to make this a choice election against Joe Biden. It was not nearly as successful as it was for either George W. Bush in 2004 against John Kerry or Barack Obama in 2012 against Mitt Romney. Yeah. But, uh, you know, at the same time, with a pandemic going on and you see however many millions it turns out, 140, 145, whatever it is, you know, that you see stunning. Right. It's stunning. Americans found a way to do it. They either found a way to register and vote by mail. We'll find out exactly how successfully when they're all counted or they stood in line or, you know, and stood in line for hours. And that to me, as somebody who studies voting is is remarkable and it's it's encouraging. It's it's inspiring. It is the great American success story of this election. And I know that sounds maybe oddly rah, rah, but it's just a fact. We adapted at the state and local level. People planned. They came up with different adaptations to vote. People listened to what their election officials said. They did that thing that you heard in the public service announcements. They formulated a plan. They executed that plan. And they did so when there was an obvious risk. I'm not exactly sure how high. I'm not a doctor. But there was some risk involved to voting if you were voting in person either early or on day of. And people did it anyway in astonishing numbers. And we did that. Even though we don't invest a lot in our election systems financially, everyone scraped together just enough to pull this election off and pull it off well. My thanks to Ed O'Keefe, Anthony Salvanto. That's it for the your takeout outtake especial. Stay with us next week because the next time you hear my voice, we may have a new president or the same one. Either way, I'll be here. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.